Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Ontario's health minister says the government is not changing course on its reopening plan despite rising cases. Christine Lallet says if restrictions are reintroduced, it's going to be done on a regional basis. Is that the best move? Hamilton's Integrity Commissioner says Mountain Councillor Terry Whitehead bullied city staff at a meeting in September of last year. Should he be docked a month's pay, as the recommendations talk about? Laura Babcock will join us to talk about that. And Sesame Street's Big Bird got vaccinated against COVID-19. Some people aren't happy about it. What are the business ethics of using children's TV programming to increase vaccination? It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's talk about what's happening here with COVID here in the province of Ontario. Ontario appears to be throwing the ball to municipalities now when it comes to taking action over rising COVID-19 cases. 441 new infections reported yesterday. The seven-day average for new cases is at 492. That's up from 371. So, should we be concerned? Well, let's get some details on this. Brianna Cargany from Global News has some details for us. Ontario's health minister says a bump in COVID-19 cases was anticipated as people move indoors for the colder weather. Dr. Moore, Chief Medical Officer of Health, uh, still feels very uh, strongly that the system is ready to deal with some increases in cases. Christine Elliott says Ontario is not changing course on its reopening plan. If restrictions are reintroduced, she says it will likely be led by local medical officers of health. So what needs to be done to avoid a potential strain on hospitals? Less crowding, more ventilation, even more vaccines. Dr. Peter Uni, head of Ontario Science Advisory Table, says we can't be complacent. Ontario plans to gradually ease more restrictions, including the mask requirement, by March. Brianna Carnegie, Global News. So let's uh, let's talk about the implications of this and just what may be happening as a result of these rising numbers. Uh, to do this, we're pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Prabha Jha, who is an epidemiologist and professor of global health with the University of Toronto. He's also a founding director of the Center for Global Health Research at St. Michael's Hospital. Uh, doctor, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Happy to join you, Bill. How concerned are you with the rising numbers, Doctor? I'm somewhat concerned, uh, less so than in the previous viral waves, uh, simply because we've done quite a good job of vaccinating most Ontarians. But Bill, basically the challenge now is to vaccinate all of uh, certainly adult Ontarians. And there's still uh, roughly 200,000 or so adults above age 50 in Ontario that are not vaccinated. And that's the real challenge. Because those are the people, if they get infected, are likely to get sick and be in hospital and put pressure on our hospitals and our intensive care units. So uh, I think that's the real challenge. This mini resurgence that we're seeing over the last week was somewhat expected, partly because people moving indoors with the weather change and partly because now an increasing proportion of the lower total are occurring from children who are not yet vaccinated. So that was all uh, expected. I'm heartened by the fact that what we've not seen is a big jump up yet in intensive care admissions or hospitalizations. And the hope is that this wave will have more cases um, and fewer deaths or fewer hospitalizations. So you get a decoupling of the two, which happens when you vaccinate large parts of the population. So that gives us a little bit of good news. Uh, I think the strategy continues to be make sure all adult Ontarians are vaccinated. We should be trying to aim for 95% to not be happy with our you know, 85% or so that we're at. So how do you bump that number up, Doctor? And I'm, uh, I, I mean, you're singing to the choir here. I mean, we've been talking about this from day one. I, I, I find it remarkable that you know a year and a half ago when we were saying, God, if we only had a vaccine, the, these numbers would go down. We've got it now. And as you say, there's a percentage of the population that just don't seem to want to play ball here. Uh, and and, and with, that's got to happen. I mean, the, the vaccination rates have to increase for us to, to uh, I guess, assuage some of these concerns, don't they? That's true. So I think it's very clear that vaccine mandates at work do uh, do have an impact. I'm disappointed in the premier's decision to lift the vaccine mandate on healthcare workers, mm-hmm. uh, mostly because it sends a signal. Remember, people are looking for cues, 
And it's that's not natural behavior. If you don't see many sick people around you, you won't change behavior as we did very early on in the past uh, past waves. So that means we have to really get our signaling right. Um, and I think the emphasis on making sure we reach unvaccinated should be front and center. But we've focused a little too much, I think, on boosters. But boosters aren't essential here. It's reaching the unvaccinated, which is essential. We also need to do what uh, has been identified. There's probably 100 or so postal codes in Ontario that are below average so rather in terms of coverage. So send teams out to them. Don't wait for them to show up at a clinic. Send mobile clinics out in the low areas. Do local uh, mobilization. Work through the church leaders, through the grocery stores, whatever you can do to try to bump the rates up in these lower vaccinated uh, neighborhoods. Uh, and then finally, I think what we do need is really an expansion of the testing. Uh, we still haven't got that right. And I would like to see us, for example, do what England has done, where um, the English National Health Service mailed out a kit of five tests uh, that you do it yourself at home to every house. So basically, you, if you think you might have COVID, you test yourself and you act responsibly, which I think most Canadians would do. And we've got millions of test kits procured in Canada, but we just haven't been using them. So I think this would be a good time to literally do that. Mail one out, uh, which has got five kits to every household and say, here's how you use it. And if you test positive, here's the steps to do. So all of those things, I think, would help us keep um, this next viral wave really under control. And then we're really at the mercy of what happens to the virus globally. So far, we've got the Delta variant, which is, uh, you know, I joked last time, it's a bit like the Amazon of, uh, of viruses. It just swamps every other virus in terms of its, uh, how much of the market it, uh, it covers. If we don't get a new variant that is worse than Delta, we'll actually be okay. But that's not so much determined of what's happened in Canada. It's determined by global control of the virus. But but the as you say the, the 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 tool we have here is still vaccination, uh, whether Absolutely. it's going to be Delta or something else. And and, and I guess we always come back to this. And uh, I, I agree with you. I think what we need to do. There are some people that just aren't going to get it. And, and you know I'm not going to start fighting with the Aaron Rodgers and 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 pe Joe Rogan's and people like that. I mean they are what they are. Uh, but there's probably some people that are still well. I'm not sure. And, and you need to convince them. But how can you do that? Uh, and at the risk of bringing you into the political weeds here, doctor. Uh, when you've got a provincial government here that, first of all, doesn't do the mandate on healthcare workers, and I agree with you, I think that was a, an egregious error. Uh, and then you've, the messaging from Queen's Park is, look, at, uh, by the end of March, you're probably not even going to need the vaccine. Uh, you don't need proof of vaccination probably by February to get into places. Basically, that's telling the people that have not been vaccinated, just hold on there. Uh, you know, Eventually, yeah. this is all going to go away, and you don't have to get vaccinated at all. That's the implied message here, and that's not helping the situation. And that's scientifically wrong, this idea that we're going to um, be done with this pandemic. Well, no, I think we've got several years of living with the virus. And part of that will mean masks indoors uh, and um, common testing and um, vaccine mandates and vaccine passports. But the truth is people have returned to work returned to schools, returned to visiting uh, family uh, very safely. My daughter organized uh, and staged a, a musical. She writes to like musicals. It had 100 people in the, in the church, and um, it was done safely. We got information on everyone, and we made sure everyone had uh, vaccine certificates as they came in. So you can do things safely if, uh, if they're so organized. Uh, but I think what we do must bear in mind is that uh, the pandemic needs ongoing vigilance. If you just relax a little too much, like England did when they lifted their, they didn't have a vaccine mandate uh, or a vaccine passport system, and they didn't want masks. So you compare England to Italy, and even though they've got high rates of vaccination, England's getting a rebound because they lifted the restrictions too quickly. 
So we we do have to emphasize this. Uh, I think the other thing that will help to try to reach the unvaccinated is telling a lot more personal stories uh, about the benefits of the vaccine. And I can tell you mine. I think the vaccine saved my life because really? uh, yeah, because I was double vaccinated early as a healthcare worker um, mm-hmm. with the Pfizer. So I got two doses early. But for my work, I had to travel to Sierra Leone. Um, and I went in May, and coming back to the airport on the way out, I got a call saying, you're positive, you have to quarantine. I was shocked. Uh, but even with the two doses of the Pfizer, I still picked up a virus. And um, now the thing is, had I not been vaccinated, I would have probably had something like 2 to 3% chance of being hospitalized or dropping dead. That's pretty big. You know, at my age, that's still pretty big. The vaccine got rid of 95, 96% of that risk. I had no symptoms. So all I had to do is isolate and I have uh, was ab- absolutely fine. Have I not had the vaccine, I might have well have been dead. I mean, that's that's the reality. Uh, and dead in the middle of, uh, of Africa as well. So we we have to tell stories about how the vaccine has transformed uh, not just you know the public health, but it's actually saved lives. It saved lives of grandmothers and of uh, of parents in extraordinary ways. We have to tell good news stories of what's happening now with nursing homes because they're vaccinated, and I think all of these will help persuade the people who are willing to be persuaded. There's still some, there's really some very hardcore, but there's still some people who are not getting the right kind of messages. Uh, And we have to emphasize, get the two shots. That's the priority, not the booster. And I'm wondering if we're fighting in the wrong, the wrong battleground here. I mean, you know, the, the, the explosion of, of anti-vax stuff that's going on out there for the most part is on social media. And, and uh, you know, you, I, I would think that that's where the, the good news stories have to be planted as well so that people can get that side of the story as well. Because, you know, in the absence of that information, they're simply going to gravitate to to the, you know, to the Donald Trumps and Joe Rogans and said, ah, this is nothing. You know, just take this delicing thing from horses and you're going to be fine. And and some people still buy into that sort of thing because they, they don't get those contrary messages. I, 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 I'm hoping that the government, who I guess are basically responsible for messaging when it comes to the vaccine, don't take their foot off the gas here. I agree. And I think being very clear, saying that this isn't over in March of next year, and we need to adjust to the reality of wearing masks indoors um, and as much as possible. Wearing masks on the Toronto Transit, I think, will be the new normal. But that's perfectly fine. Tokyo's been doing that for, for years. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Um, having very easy access to testing and making sure, as probably we'll have to, is to get the equivalent of a semi-annual uh, flu shot or a booster shot. We can live with all of that if we uh, remove some of the vitriol. Uh, and unfortunately, as you know, social media makes money off hatred and misinformation. So uh, that's that's part of the con- contributor here. Uh, but I do think very practical things, work with community leaders, work with the big businesses, work with uh, the hotspot areas of unvaccinated uh, in Canada would be the right way to go to uh, and very much try to uh, increase and reach the unvaccinated. I would say to, uh, to my friends, if you know anyone in your friend circle that's unvaccinated, then have a chat with them. Don't lecture them, but have a chat with them and say how much better they'll be and will all be if they are uh, vaccinated. Uh, and I think it's also by word of mouth. We can't just rely on government. We have to try to reach out to our friends and others who are hesitant and say, what can we do to help you? And I know that we've had the discussion many times about whether some of these announcements or that come from, in this case, Queen's Park, are politically driven or medically driven. And, and, and listen, we're not uh, unaware of the fact that there's a provincial election uh, in you know the early part of summer next year. It'd be great if they could say, hey, we, we defeated this thing and it's going to go away. But I think we have to be pragmatic about this and say that's not going to happen. I, I get concerned, though, Doctor, when you hear stories about, well, and even Dr. Uni hinted at this yesterday, maybe we have mm-hmm. to consider you know uh, attendance uh, restrictions once again. Uh, which is really penalizing for the most part people that are already double vaxxed. I, I, I think that your attitude here and your your 
suggestion here that we get back into the vaccination push here. It seems to be the answer. In other words, uh, the, the double vaccinated people aren't the problem here for the most part. It's the people yeah. who have yet to get the vaccination. Yeah, that's the uh, key determinant of um, the intensive care units, the older adults. Now, it is true that now more infections are occurring in younger um uh, younger adults and children, mm-hmm. um, adolescents, but I'm less worried about them because they have very low rates of complication and they won't flood our intensive care units or hospitals, uh, forcing us to you know, go into lockdown. I think as vaccination rolls out for those younger ages, then uh, we can be uh, more sure. But the key remains, get the over 50s in Ontario, ideally 100% vaccinated, and then we'll be able to write out little bumps along the way that do occur. Uh, but we've done that with the flu. Remember, every year yep. we have a variable flu cycle. And um, I think part of that, one of the lessons learned, and I would look to all the political parties to see which one is going to have a sensible public health plan, uh, basically trying to get the flu shot and then seasonal coronavirus shots uh, into a, a provincial-wide plan, so basically encouraging every adult to um, to have these seasonal um, seasonal vaccines. Uh, I would be looking for that as saying, okay, who's got the best plan to make that kind of effort possible? Uh, so we have to look at it. I think that I trust most Canadians. I trust most Ontarians. I think if you treat them intelligently and don't try to talk down to them. Um, then they will respond to these ideas that, yeah, it's good for them and it's good for everyone to be double-vaxxed. Doctor, I'm glad you uh, were able to, uh, I guess, hold off and, and, and survive. I, I know it wasn't a serious case, but uh, when you test positive like that, I know it can certainly oh, it have scary. some... Yeah, it yeah, scary, I, I but, bat- but the vaccine saved my life. Otherwise, you know, I, I mean, I, it's not, I had a 100% chance of dying, but I had a pretty high percent chance of dying. And because of the vaccine, had no symptoms, and uh, you know, just tells you the power of how well these things work. Exactly. Uh, well, that means you're here to fight for another day, and we're glad that you're with us here today. Uh, and hopefully, we can continue this conversation again soon. Thanks again, Doctor. Appreciate your time. Thanks very much, Bill. Bye bye. Take care, Doctor Prabhat Jha, who is, uh, of course, working at uh, the Global Health Center at the University of Toronto, and a COVID survivor because of the vaccine. That's the kind of story we need to hear. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Busy days of Hamilton City Council. They had a discussion, open meeting about the uh, urban boundary expansion uh, conundrum that they're in right now that went on until the wee small hours, apparently. And uh, no decision. I guess they're going to continue that a little bit later on. Uh, Today, they're back at it for, I I think, a very important issue. Uh, And it's to deal with uh, basically a report from the Integrity Commissioner about the conduct of uh, one councillor, particularly uh, Councillor Terry Whitehead. Uh, the recommendation from the Integrity Commissioner is that Councillor Whitehead should lose a month's pay after finding the councillor bullied city staff in a meeting about uh, traffic on Aberdeen Avenue and uh, that he should be restricted in which staffers he can actually deal with. Uh, ultimately, this is going to go before City Council and they're the ones that will make the decision as to what's going to happen and what will happen. Well, let's assess this. Uh, Laura Babcock joins us, President of Power Group, who's been following this story uh, since day one. Uh, first of all, Laura, thanks for being with us today. Appreciate the time. My pleasure. And when I say from day one, I'm not just talking about the incident on this particular meeting uh, where the debate about this Aberdeen Avenue road diet was supposed to be going on, uh, because as the Integrity Commissioner mentioned in the report, uh, the egregious behavior goes back long before that. It does, in fact, so much so that some of the staff said, you know, it's Terry being Terry, as though this has been normalized. What we cannot have, Bill, is a community or a city hall that says, hey, this is okay, that bullying, harassment is okay. I feel responsible. I think every Hamiltonian should feel responsible for the city staff who work there and how they are treated by the elected representatives. We vote for them. We pay their salaries at council. We pay the taxes that pay for the city staff. We need to make sure that they are in an environment that is a culture where they can be professional, they can be respected, and they can be treated the way any of us would expect to be treated in our workplace. So it is incredibly important that council today not only accept the report, the recommendations against Councillor Whitehead, impose those, 
but also speak to it. Send a message that says, this behavior is not okay. This toxic environment is no longer acceptable in the city of Hamilton, and we're going to stand up to it, and we're going to speak clearly against it, and we're going to move forward, basically espousing the values that we always say we have, but have not been demonstrating through both Councillor Whitehead's behavior and as the Integrity Commissioner said, Bill, this council has not only enabled, but even encouraged this bad behavior. I mean, those are the Integrity Commissioner's words. So council better stand up today and set the record straight about whether or not they have values as a governance body and whether or not they want to run a city hall that has the same level of integrity and ethics as every other workplace is supposed to have. See, I'm going to look at this, from a, I, I, and I agree, I agree totally with everything you've said, but from a different perspective, uh, this meeting today is not about Councillor Whitehead. The, that, that's already been judged, uh, and there's the report in front of them, okay? The, the, there's no arguing the facts here. That's what it is. Today is going to be a reflection on Hamilton City Council and how they deal with this, because past history, and you've been on the show many times as we've talked about some of these other incidents, they circle the wagons when one of their own is accused of almost anything, and basically, they, they just try to brush this under the carpet. But the only exception I can ever think of uh, where they didn't do that was with uh, with uh, Mayor Bertina, where they censored him because he had the audacity to go to Queen's Park and argue for something the rest of council didn't want. Uh, they considered that egregious behavior. But something like this, they turn a blind eye to. And they have done this traditionally. I, I, is there an expectation that it's going to be any different today? Well, what was sickening in the report, and I think that every Hamiltonian should check it out, Get to the part where it talks about the findings, and it will blow your mind that the integrity commissioner said the things they said, including that council enables and encourages this behavior, right? But the fact that they didn't just sit passively by, they actively supported Terry over the chair, John Paul Danko, who was trying to rein in Terry's harassment of staff. And so the integrity commissioner says in all the municipal governance models or meetings they watch, they would have expected the other people around that table, the other councillors, to stand up and interject. But they not only did not to stop Terry, they actually voted down the chair who has now been vindicated, John Paul Banco, who was trying to stop Terry. So, Bill, you're right. This goes back a long way. And... The fact that it has been, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, nobody, they all back themselves up and cover themselves. It's disgusting. And I don't know what kind of arrangements they have with each other or whether or not they feel if they call one of them out, they're all going to be exposed or whether or not they're just okay with this kind of bullying of staff. Of, and we're not just talking about staff here, Bill. I want to be clear. Councillor Whitehead and other members of council have also had this kind of attitude towards delegations that have come, civic leaders who have stood up and and been critical of them over the years, even media have been on the receiving end of this kind of entitled bullying crap. And so council today is going to have to stand up and be counted, each one of them. You know, they may just pass it, you know, accept it into the record and say nothing. But that would be a huge dereliction, not only of their duty to set the record straight, but hypocrisy, given how they spoke to the integrity report findings against a, a citizen, Cameron Kretsch, who effectively did nothing. And I don't think they should have ever turned the integrity commissioner on to this citizen. The fact now that the integrity commissioner is doing what they're supposed to do and holding counsel to account if they don't speak to this egregious behavior of Councillor Whitehead out loud in front of the cameras for the public record, I think every Hamiltonian can say, so wait a second, you protect each other, you treat staff this way, you treat the community this way, um, and you're not going to say a thing? I mean, that, to me, that's cowardice, and that's an abdication of their leadership. Uh, we should mention, by the way, that uh, Councillor Whitehead has been off on medical leave for about the, the last uh, number of months now, seven months, I think it was. But he did get a copy of this report uh, before he, he made that pronouncement and, and went away. 
uh, and he called the preliminary findings unfair, unethical, and flawed. Uh, Council talked about this too. I just want to bring our listeners up to speed on this, Laura, because it's included in the Integrity Commissioner's report. Uh, even before they they released their findings uh, back in 2020, there was a council meeting uh, that addressed uh, some of the criticism about uh, Whitehead's uh, behavior at that meeting. And uh, this is a, a quote from Councillor Tom Jackson from uh, Ward 6 on the East Mountain, who's been a longtime uh, colleague, of course, of, of Councillor Whitehead's. The quote here is, Laura, I've noticed some of the unnecessary criticism and at times mocking remarks he, meaning Councillor Whitehead, has had to endure because he was fighting what the overwhelming majority of West Mountain wants. So I just want to admire and recognize him. And that speaks, I think, volumes about the attitude that councillors have about this kind of behaviour. It's okay, I guess, as long as you are, quote-unquote, fighting for residents. Well, it's disgusting, that comment. Because what it's essentially saying is that this bad behaviour, this harassment and bullying is okay for a city councillor to use if they feel like they're fighting the good fight. What kind of nonsense is that? You're not allowed to treat people like that in business. You're not allowed to treat people like that who work for you or your colleagues in any other workplace. Just because you think that your particular agenda item or your opinion is more valid than the people who are dissenting, you don't get to use these tactics. You know, you don't get to, and the integrity commissioner said that actually, no, counselors aren't victims because the, the staff can't fire back equally. There is a power differential here, Bill. And, you know, Tom Jackson, he's my counselor. He's been on counselor a decade or two too long. He's been the longest counsel. How can you be in a job 30 plus years and have any kind of perspective? How can they be in these long-term relationships where they get each other's back and give us the kind of accountability that we deserve? We should not be begging for our counselors to treat us with a modicum of respect when we take time out of our day to go and delegate in front of them. We should not be begging today for city council to see this report with these findings that are damning and beg them to speak to them. They should have come out as soon as this came out on Friday. I think a mayor like John Tory would have spoken to it immediately. And what do we have? Silence. And Terry Whitehouse coming out with this lawyer's uh, ridiculous letter trying to make these, this case that he's somehow being mistreated. He is not the victim. He is the bully. And we all know why bullies bully, and we all know what you have to do with bullies, and that is to stand up to them. So let's see if council has the courage to do that today. Another line from the report, this is from the Integrity Commission's report, said uh, this is regarding Councillor Whitehead's behavior on that particular day. No court would condone it. Uh, it goes on to say, uh, Whitehead's questioning, the opposing lawyer in a court would have objected. In a workplace, any kind of questioning of an employee would be recognized as harassment. Uh, and there's a protocol. And by the way, you touched on something I think it's very important to this discussion. Uh, and I assume it's the same way in most municipalities. City staff are not allowed to talk back to councillors during a meeting. They're allowed to answer the questions councillors put to them. Uh, they can't say, Mr. Councillor, I think you're nuts, or hey, councillor, back off. They can't do that. So they just have to sit there and take it. But I will tell you this. There are avenues. Where was the city manager in this, who was basically the boss of the staff member that was being harassed? Uh, they said nothing. They referred us to human relations, to HR. I was at a meeting when I was on city council some years ago uh, where this very behavior was going on. It wasn't this council, by the way. It was somebody else. And it wasn't nearly as egregious as this, but it was it was pretty pointed and personal. And I can recall the city manager at that meeting exactly stepped in and said, Councillor, uh, I, I, I can't let you talk like that to staff members. If you want to address your talk, you talk to me. And that was right in public meeting. And I thought, this is the way you circumvent stuff like this. So, if you know, council is going to be on side. But I think the city staff and, the, frankly, the city management uh, also have some questions to answer here about the way that they turn their back on this issue. Well, you not just sleep at the switch. I mean, where where is the public defense of your own team? Great that the senior managers finally backed an employee and this complaint was filed. But why didn't you stand up in the moment, to your point, Bill, about that other incident, which I remember, and say, this is unacceptable treatment of senior staff or of any staff within our city? I mean, was she concerned of some kind of payback coming? Has she been bullied or is she just complicit in this kind of behavior? I mean, when you see somebody harassing, humiliating, embarrassing hurting somebody else's reputation and you know it is wrong and you don't speak to it, 
then you are complicit. And the integrity commissioner found counsel to be not just enabling, but encouraging the bad behavior. So that makes them a part of the bullying. So today, they better stand up. And the, you know, trust me, the city manager's got a lot to answer for in this. And perhaps she was taking some sort of background, silent, supportive role. It isn't enough, Bill. You know and I know leaders have to message. Leaders have a public pulpit for a reason, a bully pulpit, and they need to use it. The mayor should have spoken out the second this report became public on Friday. We should have heard from the city manager. And if we don't hear them speak to this today and say, these are the values of this city, this is how we run this organization, this is how we treat employees, and what happened here was wrong, and we will not be a part of it or enable it or encourage it in the future. If we don't hear that, then I think we all have a good answer on October 24th, 2022nd, when we go to the polls. And we think about whether we're going to rehire these people for the job because we wouldn't accept it in our own workplace and we have to protect the city employees. Who's protecting them, Bill? We should. We pay their salaries ultimately. We should be demanding that council stand up for the rights of staff. Uh, not for a lot of people, 16 people around that council table, and I think a lot of them have forgotten the fact that they are public servants. And please look up the definition of servants, people. There's a byproduct of this, though, that, that, Laura, that I know you've been tweeting about the last couple of days that has to be part of this discussion. Uh, enough of An awful lot of very talented people have left the city employee from the managerial level. The uh, aforementioned city manager I talked about that did step up, he's gone. Uh, he's now the city manager in Toronto. Uh, other people in other committees and and and, counts and heads of departments have left. Uh, and, you know, they've been moved on. Some have been headhunted. But the rationale here is this is a toxic place for work. And staff members don't feel comfortable uh, going to council meetings to the point where, as the Integrity Commission pointed out, uh, oftentimes junior members of these staffs are told don't show up because you're going to get browbeat by this, this councillor or that councillor. I, as the manager, will take the heat for that. That's not a very comfortable working environment. Well, and beyond the fact that it's not comfortable and it is embarrassing and it's unprofessional, uh, it is also deleterious, harmful to making our city better. And let me tell you why, Bill. I have spoken to city employees, past and present, who have told me that in the process of applying their professional education to a problem that council has tasked them with, or their managers have tasked them with, they write reports. And then whatever they put in the report, if in any way it might embarrass the counselor, they've had experiences where it's been watered down to the point where by the time it gets to council, it's not even a reflection of the work that they wanted to present. In other words, the good work product that we're paying dearly for, by the way, if you don't like your taxes in Hamilton, think about how much is being wasted because of this toxic bullying garbage. We can't even get the solutions in front of or on the public record because they're whitewashed before they even get to council. So this idea of protecting the egos of these councillors and having to, you know, not have staff present because they're going to be have reputation damage or or be personally hurt or humiliated, it's insane. Like think about it if we were listening to this about any other organization, Bill. We would say that's absolutely a terrible culture, heads should rule, the board should be fired, the chair should be gone emergency measures, and yet here we sit saying, well, wouldn't it be nice today if they accept the report, let alone speak against it? So we have to just sometimes, Hamilton, realize that we've been in this swamp for so long that sometimes we don't even know. It's like that boiling frog scenario. You know, we're the boiling frog with this council and with the way most of them have been running the city the last 10, 15 years, and we need to make a change. I've got about a minute left, and I just want to remind, because I know we'll be monitoring this later on today to see how council reacts. And, and as I mentioned, they, they're the ones that are in the spotlight. Uh, and, and I know what's going to happen here, Laura. Some of the councillors are going to defend, if not all of them, are going to defend Councillor Whitehead here. And they're going to talk about the elements of the debate itself, about whether or not Aberdeen should have been reduced. That's not the issue here. That, it's not time to re-debate that. It's about this councillor's behaviour. 
and the way that he treats staff and has treated staff apparently for many, many years, according to this report. That's what they should be dealing with. Don't talk about the sideshows about whether or not this was a valid argument or not. That's that's inconsequential right now. Deal with behavior and deal with the way that staff are being treated. And this is this is on council. What they do today is going to send a very strong message about what this council feels about staff and how they feel about themselves. And are they part of a team here with staff to work towards a better Hamilton? Or did they just figure that they've got this this omnipotent attitude here that they can say and do what they want and get away with it? Well, as you and, and Graham Crawford discussed, the ILEC resident survey showed that Hamilton residents see this council. They see their lack of leadership. They're watching. They won't be gaslit anymore. This is a litmus test of the courage of each and every one of those councillors around the table, and they will be watched, and it will be recorded, and they will have to answer for it on October 24th, 2022. More to talk about this, I'm sure, after the uh, debate and after the announcements made. Uh, As always, Laura, thanks so much for this. Really appreciate the time today. My pleasure, Bill. Laura Babcock, president of Power Group. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. No, it's not Sesame Street. Uh, 980 CFPL London, 900 CHML. Well, of course, it's a fixture in just about everybody's house. I mean, how many of us grew up, or our kids grew up with this anyway? And it's still influential. Uh, you know, they, let's face it, kids listen and they learn. And uh, they hear everything that's going on around them. And I'm sure that even your little ones, although you may not think they're paying attention, are listening to, well, things like debate about getting vaccinated or not. And uh, what do you do to try to assuage some of those concerns? Well, as uh, Global's Catherine Ward talks about, uh, kids are influenced by this and they do have some concerns, which is why the the folks at uh, Sesame Street decided to do something about it. Here's Catherine's report. Something's going on down at the store. For decades, Sesame Street has been helping kids understand complex topics that impact their world, including vaccines. Don't wait. Vaccinate. Over the weekend, Big Bird once again rolled up the feathers to get a COVID-19 vaccine. I've always sought to meet people where they are, and, you know, Big Bird is where the children are. While U.S. Senator Ted Cruz chose to call the move propaganda, experts say the actions will help spark important conversations. You know, I go to the dentist so my teeth are healthy. I get my vaccine to protect myself and protect those around me and so I can have more freedom. In this age group, about 60% of kids have some fear of needles. So those range from minimum to very, very high. I am so excited that kids are going to have the opportunity to get vaccinated and get protected. Samantha Yamin has had a deep phobia of needles since she was 11. She hopes families take the time to enroll their children in the process. This is a great opportunity to help them feel a sense of agency and to ask them how this experience can be good for them. That way they have a positive association. Unlike me, who had a negative association getting a vaccination when I was a kid. Experts say it's important to explain how vaccines work, prepare kids for what will happen, distract during the process, and explore accommodations that might help your child. Especially since the COVID vaccine is two shots. After your child goes for the first one, focus on what went well. You know, we want them to remember that experience in a neutral or a positive way because we know that can predict how much distress or pain they experience the second time around. Catherine Ward, Global News. And as you might expect, there's been some pushback, as Catherine mentioned in her report, uh, Republican Senator uh, Ted Cruz uh, tweeted back and said uh, that Big Bird's uh, tweet was actually government propaganda. Have you noticed, by the way, Ted Cruz looks like uh, the Count from Sesame Street? Anyway, I digress. And and other Fox News contributors, Lisa Booth and others, uh, said that they're brainwashing children. But is is this the right thing to do? They, they, they question the ethics of this. Uh, by the way, in context, if uh, your kids have been watching Sesame Street for years, uh, Big Bird has been inoculated in the past uh, for things like uh, measles and, and others. Uh, I didn't see any pushback then, but this is COVID, and I guess the rules are much different from then. But let's talk about uh, the ethics of using uh, children's TV programming to increase awareness for kids. Uh, to uh, bring us uh, into that realm, I'm so pleased to welcome to the program David Soberman. David is the Canadian National Chair in Strategic Marketing with the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto. Uh, David, a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks for joining us today. Good morning. Let me ask you the question that uh, that Ted Cruz and others seem to be uh, hinting at here. Uh, did Sesame Street go over the line by getting involved in what they consider to be a political decision? No, in my view, they didn't. Um, I think scientifically vaccination is sort of the number one path we have to get out of the pandemic. And the fact that vaccines have been tested and approved and found to be effective for uh, people between 5 and 12 is wonderful. And so we should use every tool at our disposal to try to get people uh, to vaccinate that are in that age group. And uh, we know 
that having respected figures, real or fictional, as part of a marketing campaign is a very effective way of activating people. And I got the sense, as, as we saw the tweet, and I, I think many of us probably have seen uh, the tweet from Big Bird, and of course, the little segment there that was on Sesame Street, uh, they didn't get into the politics of it. They just talked about it's, it's you know, I'm, I'm a little nervous about this, and, and but, you know, this is all for the good because it's going to make me better. And it, it seemed to be the people, the critics of this, uh, the, the Ted Cruz's and others were the ones that politicized this. Because uh, they went on to talk about false claims that you know children don't, aren't even at risk of COVID nineteen. Some of them just called this a uh, you know a, a, a drug pushing on kids and this sort of thing. Do kids understand all this? Do they get into this debate, or is you know if they're going to watch that clipper, if they saw that segment, are they more concerned about yeah I don't like needles either? Or, they don't get into the politics and the back and forth on this, do they? I don't think so, and I also think you're absolutely right. The whole issue here is to sort of make um, children and parents as well feel as if this is um, the right thing to do. I mean, um, historically, um, disease has been one of the most brutal killers that we've had in human history, you know, whether it's the Black Death or the smallpox uh, pandemic that we had earlier in the 20th century. So the whole issue here is that, you know, through a combination of prevention inoculation and treatment, uh, we've managed to increase our life expectancy over the last hundred years by more than 30 years. So I think that um, from a science point of view, trying to promote vaccination to uh, stop this horrible virus in its tracks, which has already killed more than 5 million people worldwide, is a great, a great idea. I'd also mention too that historically, there, you know, governments have used, um, you know, um, cartoon characters to promote things that are good for society. I mean, you go back to World War II and Superman, Donald Duck and Popeye were big players in government messaging to try to get people to support the war effort. And to be honest with you, um, we're in a situation here where only the collective action of everybody will try to help us get this pandemic under control. And, and I can understand the legitimacy of that, and actually the the, the positive uh, you know ideas that, that that come from something like that, uh, especially if you're trying to reach people. You know, superheroes are superheroes, and and you know, hey, Smokey the Bear, you know, don't prevent forest fires. Absolutely. You know, if they if they'd had you know somebody like you or I sit there, hey, don't prevent. You know, are you going to pay attention? But the cartoon character, especially one that's well known, and and you know, and you mentioned Superman, of course, back in the war effort. Uh, that catches people's attention. And that's really what marketing is all about, as long as there's a positive message to it. Absolutely. And I think, I mean, I understand uh, the arguments that are being raised that somehow vaccination is an infringement of, you know, individual freedom and people's right to choose. But I think um, historically what we understand is that there's many principles um, that um, govern our society and these rights or principles don't exist in isolation. So individual freedom is also limited and has to be balanced with social responsibility. And I think in the case of something like vaccines, um, this is not um, a serious infringement on um, individual choice because what you're doing is you're taking actions that are designed to prevent harm to others, which is what we try to do in society, we try to sort of balance all of these um, various principles and beliefs that we have. They don't all exist by themselves. And so in the case of vaccination, trying to get um, children vaccinated is hugely important because, um, you know, kids go to school. That is what they do. We, we've sort of come to that conclusion after several centuries, but Getting children educated is important. The way they do that is by going to school and being collectively together in a classroom. And if they're not vaccinated, that is going to be a, a very important source of infection for a virus like COVID-19. So getting those kids vaccinated is great. And because the age is five, that's really when people start going to school. So, you know, this is going to be um, a, a great progress against um, against the pandemic. And if the big bird can help us do that, so much the better. 
I, I don't want to get too deeply into the uh, the processes of Sesame Street to be, but historically, though, David, uh, Sesame Street has, has used that that platform, haven't they? For, to, I mean, they've talked about integration. They've talked about a number of what we would consider to be societal issues, uh, and you know that. And, and I know some people might feel uncomfortable with that, but they're introducing those at, at, at that level. So, so five, six year olds, or even you know a little bit older, can grasp that sort of thing. And I, I, I think obviously that's part of the charm of the program is that they they're not afraid to go down that road. I mean, the whole idea of Sesame Street was about integration, about you know about people living together and doing things that are healthy for us. I agree, and I, and I think one of the reasons we're having this discussion is precisely because um, vaccination has become politicized, and that's very unfortunate. I don't really think it's a political issue. I think it's a scientific issue. And I think if, for example, in the early 60s, we'd had a similar car- cartoon character that had been uh, promoting the polio vaccine, I don't think we would have had an issue. For whatever reason, sort of there's a a, a branch of the Republican Party in the U.S. that has decided to make vaccination a political issue. And that's very unfortunate because I see it really as an issue of science. And if what we're trying to do is get children to do something that we know is scientifically justified using cartoon characters or really respected figures to try to get both the parents and children on board with this seems to me like a good idea. And this is part of our society anyway, isn't it, David, in the broader sense? You know, if you, if you want to sell coffee, for instance, here in Canada, there's Sidney Crosby selling Tim Hortons and, and Nathan McKinnon. I mean, these are these are heroes. These are celebrities. Uh, and whatever the product is, you try to find a celebrity, I guess, that's going to appeal to the demographic that, that, that you want the, tra- the, the product to appeal to. Uh, so the, apparently that's fair game to be able to sit, use them. Why not use celebrities that children look up to to try to get that message across? I agree. And, and I guess the, the, the issue becomes, too, is if you're sort of trying, if you have something like Sesame Street, which is supportive, spo- supposed to be an entertainment and an educational vehicle for young people, and they start sort of promoting certain political ideas, um, which there are different ideas, like how much tax should we pay, um, should um, health care be provided free to everyone. These are sort of more in the realm of politics. But I think when it comes to issues like science, um, for example, um, look both ways before you cross the road. I mean, and, and when I was a kid, we used to have Elmer the Safety Elephant that used to tell us to do that. I mean, that he was a character that we, we liked and we respected. And it's And it's a scientific fact that if you don't look both ways before crossing the road, you're more likely to get run over. And we don't want our children to get run over, but we also don't want them to get COVID-19. So I I see it more in in that vein. I I think that even if it's an entertainment vehicle um, or something which is educational, if it's sort of promoting something that we can use science to say is the right thing, then I don't really think there's a philosophical or an ethical issue. It could be different if it was being used to promote a product or politics, but I don't think this is the case. Isn't this really extension, though, when you look at the broader sense here, David, of, of some of the angst that some people have uh, about truth and science, uh, which may run counter to what their political agenda might be? And I'll, I'll use another example, if we can get off Sesame Street for a second. Uh, Bill Nye, the science guy, who's been on TV for how many years now? And I guess people were very comfortable with it. He was going to t- explain to kids, you know, how balloons float or something. But as soon as he starts talking about climate change and things of this nature, a lot of people all of a sudden get their backs up and said, you shouldn't be talking about that with kids. Well, yeah, you should. And who else, do, who better to do it than a guy like Bill Nye or some of the other uh, folks that are on there that kids can relate to in situations like that? I think, I think it's a, a necessary vehicle to try to get truth out there about science and things of that nature. Yes, it's, it is tough. I mean, I think some of the um, knowledge that we have about science sort of expands over time and we learn. And so something like climate change certainly falls into that category with what we know now versus like 30 years ago. And 30 years ago, there was people that were very worried about it, too. But it's just that now we have so much more information and support for the fact that this really is a problem. 
And um, that has become a political issue because it took us a long time to get to where we are. And uh, similarly, I mean, you can even think back to tobacco. I mean, people thought it might be bad for you in the 50s. But by the time we got to the 1990s, people knew it was bad for you. So things that were sort of seen as being political have kind of been superseded by the science. The thing with the COVID-19 is that we have a very um, compressed time frame. We've gone from knowing nothing, not knowing whether vaccines would work or we'd even have one, to now having sort of scientific proof that these are really good things to try to stop this in its tracks. And this is why you're in this situation where the politics really shouldn't play a role Whereas with things that have sort of, as I would say, our knowledge has progressed over decades as opposed to over months, we can understand why things are political because there have been things that people believe that ultimately have proven not to be true, that we've actually stopped doing. But I think that, you know, scientists now are much more, they have a lot more knowledge. The knowledge base that we have to make decisions today is huge compared to what it was 10 years ago and even huge compared to what it was 50 years ago. And, and I think they understand the, the power of, of, of those sorts of celebrity a- aspects to this. I, I mean, you know, governments got involved about 20, 25 years ago, didn't they? When it came to like Saturday morning cartoons and what could advertise there uh, to make yeah. sure that it was going to be truthful, you know, that, you know, that sugar pops and, and, you know, those things are not healthy foods and you can't tell kids that they are. So there's, there's always going to be an element of let's make sure that if we're going to give a message to people that are, are, are that receptive to those messages that you're telling, you know, giving them facts as opposed to just trying to sell them a product. Well, for sure. I mean, the delivery of a message is key. This is one of the things that we talk about in marketing. And so, I mean, there's a couple of things. One, which is, is the message going to be effective and is it justified? And certainly if you're working in the world of public service and you say, you know, is the message important and is it justified? And I think in the case of vaccination, we can say yes to both of those. Now your job as a marketer is to try to deliver it in the most effective way possible. And every time you try to send a message, it costs money. So in a way, certainly if you're the government, the more effective that you are at sending a message, the more responsible you're being with the taxpayer's money. So if, for example, you're able to hire a cartoon character, which means that you only have to spend half the media to deliver your message, you're actually doing a service to um, the general population because you're getting the job done with less money. And none of us like paying more taxes, as far as I know. I mean, if we could get the same services and pay half the taxes, I think whether you are a Democrat or a Republican, you'd be happy. <laughs> yeah, it's a fascinating uh, discussion. Uh, and, and kudos to Big Bird and to the folks at Sesame Street, I think, for jumping in here. Uh, and, and by the way, we should mention this is all predicated on the fact that the, the kids' vaccine is now available in many parts of the states. And that's why Big Bird was doing this. Uh, David, great to get your perspective on this. Thanks so much for the time today. Thank you. I, I enjoyed our chat. I did too. David Silverman, uh, Canadian National Chair in Strategic Marketing with the Roppin School at the U of T. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.